TIM Podcasts. The contents and views expressed by individuals in this podcast are not necessarily those of the companies for which they work. Due to the coronavirus lockdown, the CIM podcast is currently being recorded via web conferencing. We apologise for any issues with the audio. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the latest episode in the CIM podcast series. We've got a great show ahead of us today. Joining us today, we've got Patrick Fagan, who is Chief Science Officer at Capuchin, and we've got Graham Hansel who is a course director at CIM. And today we're going to be delving into the exciting world of data analytics and how that reflects on marketing. It is a extremely important time to explore this because the change in people's behaviour over the last uh, eight or nine weeks or so during the lockdown has led to a huge change in consumer behaviour. And with that, we're being fed uh, a massive amount of new uh, data uh, on the way that consumers have shifted their behaviour. But what we don't yet know is what types of behaviour are going to stick around after the lockdown and what types of behaviour will simply revert back to the way they were before the lockdown began. And I think, Patrick, if I can start with you, is there anything we can draw immediately from the data we had to give us a clue as to what the landscape will look like after the lockdown ends. So it's very hard to predict future behaviour. Even when you survey consumers, you shouldn't really ask them what they're going to do next week. So let alone predicting complex um, communities in the long-term future is quite hard. Um, but if we want to know whether habits are going to stay ingrained or whether things might change, then there are behavioural science models that we can look to. And there are certain things that we can start to look for. Um, so in terms of habits, there are four things that will determine whether a habit sticks around or whether a new one is ingrained. Um, so first of all, there's a trigger. So there needs to be a trigger for a behavioral change. So if um, Boris Johnson came out tomorrow and said, okay, the restaurants all open again, everything's back to normal, that would be a huge trigger. Everyone would know about it. It would be very um, noticeable. And that would get people probably back to their old habits. Uh, but if it was more of a boiling the frog kind of situation where things change very slowly, bit by bit, um, then that's not going to be as, as big and, and as jolting a trigger. Um, I think that may be why they had this um, very ambiguous, confusing messaging of stay alert, control the virus, because it's not telling you to stay at home, but it's not telling you to go out either. So it's a very kind of, possibly deliberately confusing, ambiguous message that's uh, not going to be a sudden trigger for potentially counterproductive behaviours. Before you come to the other triggers, I think that's really interesting, is that you're sort of implying there that there may be an element of uh, deliberation on that, insofar as the ambiguity was somehow intended. The behavioural science says that if you're deliberately ambiguous, you will get a different response from the public than if you were extremely draconian or extremely lax in your messaging? I believe so. Um, I don't have any proof for that, but they are um, informed and advised by some of the best behavioural scientists in the country or the world even. So uh, the messaging got a lot of complaints, but I don't, I don't think they would be so kind of careless with all that good advice they're getting. Um, and then, so what else do we need to look for? Well, the other thing is motivations. 
So you need to be motivated to do something new. So generally speaking, we're cognitive misers. Uh, we have very limited physical energy. We have very limited time and brain power. So we often just go with the easiest thing. And that's mainly the reason why habits tend to last because they become uh, thoughtless, effortless behaviors. Um, and so you need some kind of reason to put effort in. You need to expect to be able to get something out of it um, or to avoid something negative. So uh, obviously people, for example, all want to see their friends and family and they all want to go to restaurants. So that motivation is certainly there. Uh, I think the question is, A, will the, I guess, fear and shame and social pressure motivations we're currently feeling, will they start to subside over time? Um, uh, and secondly, are the motivations to go out and go back to normal, are they being satiated elsewhere? So if you're having, for example, Zoom, um, quiz parties on a Saturday is that satisfying your your need to go out and meet people face to face um, so there's motivation then related to uh, being cognitive misers there's also the ability to do something so to do a new habit or to change a habit you also need to actually physically be able to do it have the energy time etc um, also have the sense that you can do it so have some kind of feeling of self-esteem um, when it comes to what we're seeing at the minute, that could potentially be financial. So people can stay at home and uh, not go to work and so on, it, as long as they still have money to survive and pay their rent and so on. And then the fourth thing is uh, expectations. So you need some kind of expected reward um, or, or there needs to be some kind of reward mechanism in place uh, in order for the habit to become ingrained. Um, so in this case, people need to uh, feel that they won't, for example, get punished if they go out uh, and go back to normal or that they will. I think the reward is quite strong because going out and seeing people and eating in restaurants and going on holidays is a reward in itself. Um, so those are four things. Um, they have the acronym MEET, Motivation, Expectations, Ability and Trigger, which is useful to remember. Graham, have you noticed yourself responding to the subtle triggers there that... Um... Patrick's been describing yes yeah very much so uh, I think one of the big ones is that there's less excuse to talk to people now and what I mean by that is the ability that whether someone's on the other side of the world or whether someone is in your local neighborhood you've still you've in effect because of classic digital you know simplicity you've got the ability to talk to someone as easily as anyone else so actually there's sort of like this democratization of um, communication i've seen through digital i'm not saying this is just on a personal level where i can talk to someone who i might only think about contacting once or twice a year normally um, you know birthdays classic big celebrations suddenly it's like they're as much a part of my friend set as someone who I would see daily in the local area, because actually they're all equivalent. There's only, they're one click away on Zoom or Hangouts or whatever you're using to actually get in touch with them. So it's, it has changed behavior in me already in the sense that basically I haven't got the excuse to ignore people if, because they're far away distance has become immaterial which has always been part of the constant trend with digitalization over the last 25, 30 years. But it's become immediate now that actually you you talk to people you want to talk to um, and you can share time with and those that you care about have those feelings for. And in other words, you can be more selective and start gathering groups around you that you feel are more um, positive to you. 
because it, and now you, because you can just talk to them. You just need to find a, quickly find a time and talk to them. So I, I'm definitely seeing a change of behaviour with myself. I think the important part is some of this, as Patrick pointed out, some of this will stick, and the art is going to be trying to align the data with those that become embedded changes versus those that, as you say, just spring back to previous behaviours. Patrick, this is interesting, isn't it? You do, people are doing things in a different way, sometimes for a first time, or maybe they did it very infrequently prior to the lockdown, and now they're doing it frequently, and it's become normalised. How do you think that normalisation might manifest in changes in consumer behaviour? Um, so there's the status quo bias, where we tend to do what we have always done or what everyone else is doing so what is the done thing to do because it's easy it's risk-free and so on so once something becomes normalized uh people of course are much more likely to do it so remote working i think is one traveling and um going out and kind of spending time and and natural resources traveling just isn't really defensible anymore when i can do all my work uh virtually um so that's one thing. Uh, people have become more um, uh, prudent with their money. Um, and so, for example, you do more likely to do a weekly shop and to think about what you're going to eat today based on what you have in the fridge rather than what you feel like and just going and buying more stuff today. Um, there's also a psychological model called uh, the behavioral immune system. Um, and a related one is terror management theory. But essentially, when we're presented with something disgusting, threatening, some kind of contagion or infection or um, terrorism, for example, as well, uh, we become much more conservative, risk averse. Um, we prefer heritage brands. We spend less money. We become more sensitive to potential loss. And all of these types of things, we cling to authority and we do what the group tells us to do and is doing. Um, I think potentially some of these will continue uh, after the lockdown ends. For example, if we're all going to be wearing face masks, that's going to have quite a big psychological effect on us and we'll be more sensitive to potential disgust. We'll be a bit more dehumanized because we won't be able to see each other's facial expressions and so on. So I think you'll see more of a community focused, local, um, perhaps less kind of... Um, open and globalized uh, approach to consumer behavior uh, uh, an example of this is simply the amount of searches that have flipped from people searching for near me to delivery so what you're actually seeing here is this change in the last eight weeks where the, there's been a big trend upwards in delivery searches and they are predominantly obviously still locally based but people aren't think they aren't using the same language uh, as they were before. So if you were uh, had near me as part of your data set of identifying your potential customers, then you need to now be looking at not just um, searches for delivery, but obviously providing those delivery searches if that's appropriate to your um, offering. So I think taking this forward and making it actionable to a degree has got to be you've got to identify quickly the changes in your audience to shall we say this new normal phase as in the lockdown phase and then be able to measure as you go into the new post-covid-19 reality whether those behaviors have stuck or whether they're in effect reversing and going back to pre-covid behaviors and that's going to be down to you know industry level, company level, audience level. But building that 
those canaries to tell you if what's actually changing and what's happening and whether they're staying or reverting back is a, a good investment now in your data modeling because without them you don't know what happened and therefore you don't know when it's changing it's, it's, it's an interesting when we're trying to find out what this next epoch looks like looking at the data we've we've examined those stories we understand the mindset of the consumer we don't know the detail of how that mindset is going to manifest in consumer behavior. You know, what are they going to keep buying online versus what are they going to go out shopping for? What are they going to eat inside the house versus what are they going to go out to eat? Where are they going to travel? Is it going to be closer to home or further away? When we're looking for the canaries that Graham was describing, what are the tools and techniques that we need to be using now to make sure those canaries are in the right place? Um. So as I said before, people are notoriously bad at predicting their future behavior. And it's much better if you want to predict their future behavior to ask them what they did in the past than to ask them what they will do. Um, so on that basis, um, I think there's kind of trend forecasting you can do. So if you're tracking behavior over time, you can do some statistical forecasting and see where it's likely to go, what the trend line looks like. Of course, there's all kind of assumptions in that, and it's probably just as qualitative as it is quantitative. Um, you can have a look at uh, what's happening on the ground by talking to people and seeing how things are evolving, uh, but also what are their physical kind of manifestations and examples of particular trends. So, for example, the local community one, um, if you're spotting all these local community cafes popping up with drive-through windows or whatever it might be, then that might be a signal that that's going to keep growing into the future. Um, also, so I worked at a trends forecasting company for a couple of years when I was younger, and they do do this, so um, I think there is merit to it, but reading sci-fi actually can be quite instructive because it, it tends to be based on consistent, uh, long-lasting psychological principles um, and have these kind of philosophical truths in there. Um, so, for example, Lord of the Flies is a good one for the current um, lockdown, I think, and um, 1984 is a classic as well. I'm also reading The Kraken Awakes, which is about how the public and society at large act when they feel threatened by some kind of invading force. Graham, are you a sci-fi reader? Well, I'm going to use the analogy of uh, famously from Douglas Adams, which is everything in your life when you're born is normal. You know no different. So all technology is absolutely normal. So that's why you have infants playing with uh, tablets, iPads and uh, mobile phones, because that's normal. It's only the challenge that happens in your lifetime when you've, you're past your formative years. Those challenges are the ones that generationally are the hardest for you to take on board. And as Douglas Adams said in his quote, yeah, anything that is new over your age of 30, then you probably want to see it outlawed, banned or restricted because it's a change to your worldview. I like this phrase, new, new normal and business is unusual because... It is how, what we're talking about is how do we as human beings deal with the seismic changes that have been wrought upon us, but similar changes have happened in the past. So you can look at extrapolating them forward and then, yeah, quite possibly using sci-fi tropes to bring in that impact of technology. So that's absolutely fascinating, um, 
Patrick, there are three things, it strikes me, going on. There is, there is evidence from past events, past pandemics, past crises, whatever the external factor might be. There's philosophy. We talked about sci-fi tropes, which are almost evergreen. These uh, remarks on human behaviour are evergreen. But then there is the micro level that you've got to get right in your organisation to make sure to check whether your canaries are fitting in with that wider external context. What are the key ways that marketers can do that now and after the pandemic to make sure that they're meeting all of those uh, requirements? Uh, typically, there's a data collection phase where you get into the real the numbers, the data, the concrete stuff whether that's collecting it through third-party data sources or doing your own primary research or scraping social media or whatever it might be. But before that, there uh, should be qualitative kind of inputs and uh, outputs, as it were. So before you do the data collection, you want to do some qualitative exploration to understand what are these, for example, philosophical truths, these archetypes, semiotics, maybe psychological frameworks and so on to build up some kind of hypotheses. And then you can use that to guide and inform your data collection. So maybe you use that to write the right survey questions. So if you're interested in, um, let's say, story archetypes, you can ask a question where, to see how people subjectively feel that they sit along those story archetypes. So do they believe that they're at the beginning? Do they believe they're going through trials and tribulations, do, do they believe they're at the bottomless pit, the kind of abyss where things couldn't get any worse and so on. Um, and then anyway, once you have all your quantitative data, then you apply kind of a psychological, maybe philosophical lens to the data itself to interpret it and understand what's going on. Um, so that's all kind of a long way of saying that even though we have this amazing data, data collection, analysis, and so on, there still needs to be kind of a human brain before and afterwards uh, to make sure the right things are being captured and then to make sure they're being understood and used in the best way. How good do you think we are at it generally, Graham, in the sector? I think as an industry, marketing is still predominantly gut driven. Um, it is not data driven in my experience. Now, I may be biased because obviously the people I'm training uh, tend to have that f focus on learning in this area. But in my experience, most companies talk being data driven. What they do is the data collection part, but actually making decisions based on data is, in my experience, in most industries, it's still a long way off. So I think what we're going to see now out out of COVID-19 and the pandemic will be for those companies that are going to prosper and when I say prosper survive and grow in the post-pandemic world they're going to need to pivot to being more data-driven and when I say data-driven I mean making taking action based on qualified data but not perfect data and that's something that I think a lot of people get confused by in data analysis is it's not about collecting everything and in effect having a perfect library of knowledge and then making decisions it's actually making decisions based on imperfect data and preferably obviously tested models which allow you to weigh the error uh, and therefore the risk factors in making decisions based on certain models. But it's the biggest failing I see in marketing is too much data collection and not enough action. 
based on that data itself. And I personally believe you're going to see, even though this is, again, a generational change, you're going to see AI step up in the next five years as a big central piece of marketing because the amount of data and the risk modeling that is required is not, how can I put it? It's not natural to a lot of marketeers. So that isn't to say that they don't have a role inside of it, but it'd be, in my opinion, easier to build sufficient AI capabilities in most companies in the next five years than it would be to try and bring the marketeers away from their natural skill set, which is ultimately emotive um, communication uh, and trying to move, take that skill and add in deep level data analysis. It's better to bring, you know, play to your strengths, especially in times of potentially reduced bus budget, recession, and, you know, a compressed consumer marketplace. So I can see this as one of those epoch points for a new technology, and that will probably be AI in marketing. Presumably, uh, Patrick, there's a danger if we don't take these steps. We need to put good data in to get good results. Um, and there's an uh, interesting study or project by Reach PLC, who own uh, the Mirror and things, I think. Um, but they called it the empathy delusion, and they were looking at the gap between marketers and the rest of the country on values and outlook and things like that. Um, so, for example, marketers are a lot less likely to agree that they're proud to be British, uh, as one example. Um, and I think that's where data could really help is to get marketers really talking to and understanding and empathizing the people that they're selling to and just getting them closer to the customer and having the customer in the room really um, because generally speaking yet yeah, marketing often hasn't been great um, from a scientific point of view you know 50 percent of my advertising is wasted i just don't know which half for example um, but data is really helping us with that. And the ads guru, Rory Sutherland, um, makes an analogy to weather forecasting. How uh, We used to, you know, sacrifice a baby or do a dance or look at seaweed or whatever it was to predict the weather. Um, but over time, with all this data and analysis, we can predict it. Not great, but fairly well, much better than we used to be able to. Um, and, data, and marketing is kind of going in the same direction now with all the the data we're able to capture on what kinds of people buy, what kinds of products and when, and how effective advertising is. It is, Graham, isn't it? Ultimately, what we're looking for in the sector is, to use Patrick's point, a strong combination of man and machine. And given we are going into this very uncertain period, that is going to be more critical than ever, I would suggest. Very much so. And I think as well, we've always got to remember that you can't sue machines. So any decision that's actually made by AI at the moment is still the responsibility of the company and the, um, the executives of that company. So on, uh, machines at the moment are only just a tool. Um, ultimately, all, all legal responsibility sits with the, uh, the owners of that company. So whatever decisions are made still come back onto them. In theory, you might end up in a situation where the model might say you need to do something illegal because that's what the data is telling you. But then the human still needs to intercede and say, no, that's still illegal. That's what we're, there is a line and we will not cross that. That's just philosophizing about it. But you need to understand that the, this could be not just legal rules, but say brand rules. So your own brand book will tell you what, what is the pinnacle of the brand experience? What are the pillars of it? And then taking this data, 
you need to have the, the people to actually interpret it inside of those rule sets because at the moment machines aren't that experienced and i'm going to call it experienced as in program with the data to actually interpret those emotional impacts rather than just the behavioral impacts that you're seeing out there in the data sets not necessarily the emotional impacts it has on the individual or the group it strikes me that the this data revolution patrick is going to change the sector fundamentally and one of the things that you've spoken about today is understanding the customer better through empathy and that we tend to think that people think like us and of course they don't and you you implied earlier that marketers generally have a more socially liberal uh, outlook on life than the, the, the average consumer or they have a, uh, a more metropolitan uh, they hold more, tend to hold more metropolitan attitudes than the average consumer um, I'm sure there are a whole bunch of other examples where the average marketer is different to the average consumer. But it strikes me that actually understanding the data, what the data is telling us, will allow marketers, if it's done properly, to make those really important insights to show where the consumer is like them and where the consumer is different to them. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the beauty of all this data collection and analysis is that we don't have to go so much for the average anymore. We don't have to go after the average consumer, but rather we can go for more specific clusters uh, of audiences, maybe or almost certainly in the future down to the individual level. Graham, you find that assumption is on the wane, that, that assumption will become uh, a thing of the past? I would love it to be, personally speaking, but people assume it's what they do. It's how we make decisions. We've got too much choice, so we have to assume. And in business and in marketing, you need to you know, make a decision. And again, a lot of that is going to be based on your gut. And therefore, you've always got a cognitive bias around what you believe is right and true. And therefore, you will pick, you know, and this has happened time and time again, not just in marketing, but you'll pick the data that backs your story. There is this element that the rule of assumption cannot be played out because the assumption might be quietly in the background and but and people are going to present data to support that assumption so until you in effect and this is not going to happen in the next five years but until in effect ai starts producing and making the decisions at the moment it's just going to create insights then at this point assumption will always be part of the mix well you know we've got a big challenge on our hands haven't we we've got a recession to deal with it's pretty certain we're going to go into a recession i would say We've also got this mystery uh, change in consumer trends. We don't know, as we said at the top of the show, whether trend X or trend Y is going to be permanent or whether it's just going to bounce back to the pre-pandemic situation. But nevertheless, with proper data analysis, Patrick, and um, bringing in behavioural science, do you think we'll have enough tools to mitigate the worst and lead ourselves out of this into something better? I hope so. Uh, I think we're better placed than ever. Yes, I mean, we have advances, massive advances in data collection um, it, by time and place and also inputs so we can measure people's emotions and things now, which we could never do before um, or not easily scalably do before. Um, and of course, we have all these advances in analysis. So um, uh, advanced statistical analyses heading towards AI. Um, and then, of course, we have a much more in, insightful understanding of what the data means and how to use it. So the psychology behavioral element has really evolved over the last uh, couple of decades 
Um, so I think, yeah, we're better placed than ever to be able to deal with it, but there's still a huge number of unknowns. Graham, do you think people are going to be more realistic about their need to do this work now in the sector? I think what you'll see is a shift into data analysis, but it needs to be a shift towards not just the data for its own sake. It has to be business focused. It has to be customer focused. And my big view with customer data at the moment is it's still massively siloed in a lot of organizations. And one thing I know with recessions is that focusing on I, in effect, retention is going to be a big element to a lot of businesses' survival. So having that siloed customer data actually is going to be those that can break down those silos are going to gain quicker from a data and analytics perspective. You can't just have your advertising data in one place, your CRM data in another place. And people have been talking about this for years and there's a lot of examples of where uh, companies have pulled this together and there are systems that are doing this. But I think you'll see a big shift in the next 12 months towards this um, integration of systems more than ever because knowing who your customer customer is, uh, what they're spending, and their sort of micro changes in behavior. So you can start seeing if their behavior is changing back, reverting to pre-COVID, or actually uh, have become established changes. It's going to be only become more valuable to those companies that are going to succeed. Graham Hansel, Patrick Fagan, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Thank you. CIM Podcast.